This is Dan Rundy here for another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here with my friend Daniela Ballou Ayers, who's a partner at Dahlberg Advisors. And Daniela has had a very interesting career at the intersection of the public and the private sector in international development. And I would also say that the issue set that she's been working on over the last five plus years is important to the future of international development has helped set the agenda for the future of a development in a, in a number of roles that she's had, and she'll tell us about them as part of this conversation. Danielle, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So, Danielle, let's start with how did you, where, where did you grow up, and how did you end up in international development? Good question, Dan, and thanks for having me. I, I grew up in New York, in Brooklyn. The starting point for my interest in international development started in an unlikely place, which was as I was studying engineering in undergraduate. I took a summer internship in Indonesia, of all places, working at a ceramic factory making plates and toilets, where uh, my role was to help strengthen their quality control systems, build computer programs so you could find out when a, you might have defects in your plates or toilets. <laughs> but what I really you know, took away from that experience was that the employees at that factory were also facing really shortened lives as a result of the ceramic dust that was in the surroundings, of the poor labor conditions, and the society also was, it was still um, a dictatorship, was facing a really challenging environment, both from a development and democracy perspective. And it made me really interested in those issues while making better quality plates and toilets was obviously <laughs> not unimportant. The broader issues of uh, development and building strong societies uh, came to top of mind. And so as soon as I had the opportunity when I joined Bain after college, they were opening an office in South Africa. It was 1998, just post-apartheid. And I had an opportunity to go there and work with businesses in post-apartheid South Africa to really understand uh, how they were going to now operate in a global economy and be part of a very different kind of society than the apartheid society where they operated before. So you've been to South Africa, you've been to Indonesia, and then you went to graduate school. Yeah. Yeah, so after after my time at Bain, I ended up going to Harvard both for a business degree and a public policy degree at the Kennedy School, really because I had an inclination at least that there was this intersection of private sector skill set, the kinds of things that uh, companies like Bain did very well, analytics to understand a strategic environment. Those skills and approaches could be applied to the public policy challenges of our time. One of the things I saw in South Africa is that quietly people were starting to die of HIV. Mm. So it was a happy moment. Mandela was president, but at the same time, HIV was now starting to really affect the population. And while I was at Harvard, that was when that issue really came to the fore. You had big academic movement. You had Jeffrey Sachs and Jim Kim were in Harvard at that time looking at what it was going to take uh, in terms of global mobilization to affect the HIV epidemic. So I worked on one of the early studies in Malawi to look at what it would take to distribute HIV drugs in that country before there was actually any money to do it. But ha what kind of supply chains would you need? What kind of sourcing would you need? And I really saw there that the business skills that I had and the engineering skills could be applied in really useful ways to many of these challenges. And there was no place for those skills to be really aggregated and deployed. And so that was on my mind very much when I later I returned to Bain, uh, but later, uh, a few years later, went and helped start, join an early startup team at Dahlberg. 
uh, a team that was had the general idea that the types of skills we had all gained at places like McKinsey and Bain were relevant to a whole range of international development issues and weren't being utilized enough. So what is Dahlberg? So Dahlberg is, today we are a, a global group of businesses uh, and really of changemakers around the world who are focused on international social impact issues and really work at the nexus of the public and private sector. From the beginning, when we started, uh, our biggest business remains strategy consulting, but today we have a human-centered design business, a capital business, a business focused on on-the-ground research, and a big data business. Uh, but the, the real core there, I think, was recognizing that there was a group of, a set of skills uh, analytical skills, financial skills that were really relevant to addressing issues like global health, like climate change, and that there was very few channels to deploy those. So when I thought about doing that kind of work, the really only way to do it was to be part of starting my own firm uh, with Henrik Skovmi, who was the founder. And, a, and I, when I joined, we were seven people, borrowed office space, but with this idea that we, it had to be possible that these skills that big companies were using to make themselves more effective could be used for everyone from a foundation like the Gates Foundation to the UN to a company that was investing in Africa. And I think over the years, we found that that idea has um, has proven to be true. That's, and so you were at Dahlberg for a period of time, and then you got a call to go into public service. I did. I did. So I, I joined Dahlberg and, and was for eight years part of building up the team. So we went during my time there from seven people in borrowed office space in New York to nearly 200 globally with 12 offices. So that was as of 2012. And at that time... I was asked to join uh, the Obama administration and uh, serve as an advisor to the Secretary of State on international development issues. And, and that was a role that had been created by Secretary Clinton. I was not the first person. I was the second person to hold that role after Steve Radlett. How did they find you? It, actually, through our work. I was not the typical political appointee. I hadn't worked on campaigns before, but I was working on a, a variety of issues at Dahlberg, including uh, we did some work with the U.S. government to look at U.S. government, to do independent reviews of things like U.S. government investments in Haiti, of global health programs, and I had the opportunity to work with a senior officials across the State Department and USAID. So when this role ultimately became available and they approached me to see if I'd be interested in, in joining and I think the reason why this role, they were looking for someone who was not a typical political appointee, who was from outside government. I was living in New York, working with uh, companies and foundations, was that they really thought, look, international development is changing dramatically in the world. We're foreign assistance, as it's been done in the past, uh, is ready for a significant evolution. And we want outside ideas. We want private, private sector involvement, investment to be part of that picture. So they ended up asking me to come on board. That's great. And tell me about what was the job when they said, we need you to do this job? What was the role? It's a good question. Well, uh, yourself having served in I government, know. <laughs> you know that these things are not always um, the most defined. But actually, it was it was interesting because having spent a lot of my career as an advisor to leaders of organizations, I, I quickly saw two things that were an opportunity to evolve and build upon that role. One was the strategic advice to leadership, 
right? So to the Secretary of State, to the Deputy Secretary of State, really informing their thinking and decisions on international development with the best data on, for instance, what are private financing flows and public financing flows doing? How do we evolve what we're doing as a result? But this, And how do we think about the big priorities that we're focusing on the years ahead? Um, we can talk a little bit about yeah, yeah. more about I that. Um, and the second piece was then really working as, uh, as you'll see in many companies, an internal strategy kind of team. So I would pull together, if we were working on how do we target our HIV dollars better, pull together the right leaders in the organization to enable us to change the way we were focusing money. So pull together the head of the PEPFAR with our budget teams, with the best data analytics people, and, and focus that. And that kind of approach was very much embedded in, for instance, how we approach the sustainable development goals and negotiations, where I led a process in the State Department where we brought all the best experts on every issue. Um, so when we looked at agriculture we, and we wanted to figure out what would be an appropriate goal for 2030, we had experts from across the government, from the Domestic USDA, agencies. exactly, from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, from USAID, um, from the U.S. Trade Representative to say, what are the big opportunities and issues? What is the best analysis? Tell us about what the world needs to get done by 2030. So that internal bringing the right actors to the table piece paired with in a leadership and kind of externally facing drive to shape a, a set of priorities for the future ended up being the basis of my role. So in your, in your mind, I don't, it, didn't, it didn't carry over to the Trump administration, the job, right? No. So how was it, would, do you think that job was particular to Secretary Clinton? I can't remember if Secretary or Secretary, it was Secretary Kerry who had the. Both, say, yes. Both had, both of them yeah. had it. What, what, how would you think about the division of labor between what you were doing and what AID's policy shop would have been doing or the policy planning shop at state? How did you navigate that? Absolutely. So the role uh, I joined towards the end of Clinton's term and, and stayed throughout Kerry's yes. term in that role. So it, it stayed throughout the administration. You know, I think the recognition of the value uh, and need for that role was twofold. One was that our diplomacy uh, needed to, and our diplomats needed to integrate an understanding of and um, prioritize yeah. sometimes much more thinking about development issues within our diplomacy. Uh, so I saw first and foremost that as a really important role, both working with the Secretary of State as the kind of, of course, the lead mouthpiece Person. of our, of of our uh, who speaks to what our priorities are, and then working with diplomats um, across, uh, across the State Department. Uh, the second piece was there were many things where you needed to bring together all the assets of the U.S. government to drive them forward. A couple of examples. One, for instance, uh, we did a lot of work with OPIC, who the Overseas Private um, Investment Corporation, who works with U.S. companies to further investment across the world, and uh, and particularly developing countries. And they, for instance, there was a we saw a lot of opportunity for them to do more in Africa. And so we made sure that they had the resources and put some State Department resources to enable them to place people on the ground in Africa to source deals and work more closely with our diplomats. So, so you found money. You helped walk the halls of the State Department to find monies because what OPIC said was, I don't have money in my budget to place people on the ground overseas. 
And so you made it your business to say, I can get the meetings, I can get to the right decision makers who have, who, who can understand the strategic value of this, and I'm going to walk the hallways to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, for example. Yeah, for example, and make that a win-win because make the State Department was talking about investment and economic development as a core part of its priorities. And here we had an asset with the To operationalize US that. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So let's, let's just – okay, so, that, so what you said – so there was a – is there a need for it, – it, can AID do this job? Could AID could could the aid administrator or someone at the at AID do this role? I'm guessing not, but I, I'm be curious about what your answer is to that. Mm. Look, I think AID has a huge portfolio of investments in development, right? And its its focus is making those investments effective, uh, deploying them to the all the key issues that aid works on. It's less of aid's business to get the de- State Department effective engaging with our counterparts around the world on these issues and make development part of the core business of our diplomatic relationships. Uh, so State Department and, and USAID work together all the time. Yes. They work together in embassies all the time. Yes. Um, but that internal change, so for instance, within you know the State Department is always going to have a significant role in international negotiations. Of course. And so the sustainable development goals, for instance, were a big piece of my work and the State Department didn't really have the historical um, experience of working so closely with USAID and other agencies on a very substantive negotiation. I mean, this was a very substantive technical. There was 169 sub-indicators, 17 goals. Yes. <laughs> how many countries? 130 countries? There were 90 countries in the subgroup and then 193 countries yeah. that signed yeah. on. Um so in that instance, you really saw the value of creating the connectivity so that the State Department and USAID and the rest of the government were not distinct efforts going in different directions. Yes. Our policy and what our diplomats did represented what we cared about from a development perspective in USAID and across the U.S. government. And so I think the risk we've had historically is – that, and this would not be so different the way I see what happens in companies. If you think about companies and how they think about CSR, there's often historically been a, a challenge that CSR is seen as something that happens someplace on side, else. On the side. It's a nice thing that we do, <laughs> um, and we invest some money there as a company, but if you're a business leader, you are not seeing that as, as, as core to your business. And I think what I saw in evolution at the State Department and the, the sustainable development goals were helpful in this, as were other things like working with OPIC, that our perspective as a government and our approaches to development are not something that happens just off to the side and that USAID alone can promote with other governments. We want all of the government to emphasize you know, how important our joint priority on economic growth globally is and how we can work together on those issues. So I, I saw a lot of that evolution at the State Department, and I'm and there was an education of our – it was an education effort internally, too, with our diplomats to see that. And I think – I'm hopeful that that continues. One of the things we really tried to do, for instance, is do things like adjust how the Foreign Service Institute is teaching about economic growth and, and development. So some of those things remain sustainable. So so let's let's talk about the – let me just talk a little bit further about the SDGs. What What are the SDGs? Why are they important? What did we what did we bring? What did we want to get out of those negotiations? 
I, I'm going to put say something controversial and say I, I don't know how many members of Congress know what the SDGs are, Republican or Democrat. I'm guessing they're 20, mm-hmm. maybe 25. Most of them are Democrats. Maybe there's five Republicans and they're the chairs or the they're the chairs of the committees and they kind of have to kind of know what it is. But so I'm tell me, like, why are the SDGs? What are they? What did we do? And why are they important? Sure. It's a step back for a moment on the Sustainable Development Goals. In, in 2000, the Millennium Development Goals were agreed uh, by member states at the UN. And some, at least, saw those as a, a really important uh, way to frame international development efforts. There was, partic- in particular, a big emphasis on health in the Millennium Development yep. Goals. And subsequent to that MDGs, you saw big Donor investments in health, particularly in HIV. There were seven goals in the MDGs. Yes. This is my simplistic version of it is a bunch of folks got into a smoke-filled room <laughs> and said, here's the, se- it's a, it was, here's the problem set we have for the next 15 years on poverty, health, and a couple of other things. They had these squares, these pictograms, and there was some grumpiness going into the SDGs about, well, this was done in some smoke-filled room, and we need to democratize it. And then, you know, so I'm sure you'll explain that. But but I don't know how many Americans knew what the MDGs were to begin I think that's with. that's right, yes. And I don't know how much we actually programmed any of our money. Now, I think it has like – and I think I'll be curious about what you think. But I, it has sort of some power around – you know, I think I'd be curious about what influence these things have, if at all, in general. And then what influence they have at all in sort of the U.S. context, which I'm, has sort of a little bit of influence. But, but I'll be curious about that. Yeah. So I would argue that the Millennium Development Goals had uh, influence in the fairly narrow circles of government international policy, particularly in Europe. In, in government international development policy, particularly among the, the Europeans. There were European governments that programmed all their foreign aid money around the MDGs and could talk about, now this, all the spending I'm doing is for goal number four over here. And then there are developing country governments that said, I'm going to program all of my solving all my problems within the framework of the MDG. So developing country governments, some of them organized, if they were had their act together, used it as a way to kind of organize how they were going to solve and their the problems. And the big anchor there was health. Yes, right? the big, the anchor, big health. anchor you know, the, those who crafted the Millennium Development Goals rightly saw that there were, the health challenge, HIV, malaria, yeah. TB. Communicable were, diseases. Communicable diseases were a fundamental challenge of the time. Yes. There was a strong emphasis. And it did help with some global mobilization. The U.S. government put a lot of money in those issues, not because of the MDGs, right? But- I, I can't think of a single speech that George W. Bush did on PEPFAR where he said, and we're going to do this because we're going to hit goal number three. No, so it wasn't for that purpose, but I would argue for the for some governments and also advocacy communities, they were a useful rallying point, right? But they were really first and foremost what one could call kind of a donor slash advocacy prioritization agenda. It was rich countries, a rich country framework right. of how the third, the developing countries ought to solve their problems. Right. right? Exactly. 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 And so that was very of the time. <laughs> yeah. In was the year 2000. In the year 2000. This was negotiated in the late 90s. Exactly. Just, there was a big push in saying, okay, we need, you know, and, and HIV was kind of the classic point in that. It was an anchor. It was an anchor because there was such a recognition. You had 20 million people who yeah. were who didn't have access to treatment who were going to die yeah. without rich country resources. Um, if I take the sustainable development goals, I think certainly where they landed and the relevance to today. Let me just pause sure. for a second and say, I think there was this recognition or there was a complaint 
that, hey, there are a bunch of wealthy countries getting in a smoke-filled room and coming up with this thing. Yes. So the negotiations for the SDGs were going to be different, and let's call them more inclusive or collaborative, yeah. which had some pluses and some negatives. Is that is that a fair description? I think that's right. I, I think they're completely different than the Millennium okay. Development okay. Goals, and for uh, and they they landed even more different than I think what was anticipated to begin with. So it was a much more democratized process. Essentially, there was a UN subcommittee of about ninety countries who went through a. a a set of issues in a very deliberate way over about nine months that looked at uh, what ended up being 17 sets of issues, but looked at urbanization, looked at health, looked at education, looked at environment, and said, what are the issues in the next 15 years that are going to impact us most? Much, quite data-driven, I would say. For a UN negotiation, I was really impressed by how much uh, that group of representatives took in data, the U.S. government provided a lot of input on the indicators and the data to consider what was really doable by 2030, as did some other governments. And what came out of that process was a set of 17 issues or goals that that very representative group of countries thought were going to be defining in the next 15 years. And so I would characterize this if the MDGs were a donor prioritization agenda yes. in some way. And, and I think that's the right way to – I agree with that. The sustainable development goals, in part because of the nature of the process to develop them, set out a set of – a comprehensive set of social, economic, environmental issues which the world is going to have to tackle over the next 15 years and sought to say – to define in a measurable way what success would look like by 2030. And so the arguable downside of that is that there's 17. There's more things <laughs> to track. Yeah, so it let's agree that 17 is hard. I can't – I have a memory – I could have a hard time memorizing the first seven. I've had oddball conversations with people who say, like, oh, I'm all about goal number 12. And I have no idea what that is, mm-hmm. and I just kind of nod my head, and I go online afterwards and Google it and say, like, what the heck is goal number 12? But there are people who fixate on this stuff. I'm I was like, oh, I'm all about goal number nine. Like, Okay, and I don't. So I mean, I so there, right? I mean, and then right. there's 169, whatever they're called, sub indicators. So there are these 12, 17 goals. So the good news is a democratic. The bad news, in my view, is there's too many goals, and 169 sub indicators is a lot. So here's the interesting thing: what I'm seeing is that the most important difference about these goals, where they are working, and I can give some examples where they are, is that it does democratize engagement on international development issues outside of what, frankly, has been a narrow industry, so to speak. It's a very narrow industry. It's policy wonk. It's foreign aid agencies. It's some some organizations. Some foundation check writers. Yeah, a limited number of foundations. And what I'm really interested by is to see how many companies are saying, oh, I'm working on health issues. I work on goal three. And no, they don't need to ask anyone to do that. They don't need to find a foreign aid agency to partner with to do that. They can say, and they many times have already been working on health issues, but now they can find themselves in an international agenda. It gives some grounding to what they're doing and how it relates to others. Similarly with investors. I mean, I was surprised. I was sitting with a major impact investing fund a few months ago. 
um, not exactly the people I was expecting to kind of affiliate themselves mm. with um, a, a the UN. SDGs. Yeah, the SDGs, because they're, they're actually a traditional investor yeah. who has set up a large impact investing fund. And they had bucketed all of their investment areas around the SDGs and created their own indicators. So what I see with a lot of the private sector is that they kind of notionally bucket around the the goal and maybe kind of the big buckets of indicators. And then they have their own analytics underneath it. So even you know, even a step further, if you look at the annual report of some very large pension funds, let's take the Australians, yeah. you will see three different SDGs that they're thinking of. You will see those icons. You'll see they're working on gender and, and board diversity. They're working on investments in climate renewables, and they're associating those with SDGs. So I was always oriented that the biggest value that something like this could create was a common language and almost brand and visual identity almost. If you look at those icons, those weren't created by the UN or the US government or any other government. They were an independent team of some of the world's best graphic designers oh, wow. and media people uh, who came together and said, we want to make the goals famous. We won't ask permission <laughs> of the UN. Gonna we're going to do it and we'll let them know. So Richard Curtis, who's a famous um, British producer who did Love Actually in Notting Hill, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, he pulled together this really amazing team of designers and media people. Uh, and they, they created this visual identity for the goals, uh, which the UN ultimately signed off on, but they did it They didn't get permission. They just did it. They did it. And those have become... Their thing. The currency. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is I was always struck by when I was presenting updates on the sustainable development goals at the State Department, you know, what the output of a diplomatic negotiation is a very dense document. Long paper. Long, hundred pages, long words. Even each goal, let's say health, wouldn't be health. It would be like health and the well-being of people, right, you know, this right, long. Right, right, And so I, I remember I gave a, an update uh, several months before the goals were finalized to senior leadership at the State Department, and I show these slides and the icons, and not much had changed since the previous update, but we had these beautiful visuals. And the reaction uniformly was, wow, there's been amazing progress. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, actually, nothing has changed but, other but than the visuals. The visuals are great. <laughs> so even, you know, kind of seasoned diplomats yeah. were reacted differently to something that was accessible um, in that way. Now, the risk is that we have this accessible effort. The brand awareness is certainly higher than the Millennium Development Goals, but not universal. Yeah. I mean, as you said, and Congress is not universally known. And so there has to be, and I see promising efforts in this direction, but there is going to have to be some way that progress measurement and what various organizations' efforts are doing are kind of aggregated aggregated in some way i mean not in like a master planning kind of way no. right but if all that happened over the next 15 years is everyone who worked on health put a nice health icon on the page that wouldn't really get us anywhere <laughs> i'm worried that's what's i'm worried that's what's happening but i'm but I could, i'm prepared to be wrong i do think we undervalue the value of the goals outside of the United States, and I think we undervalue the power of the United Nations and multilateral organizations outside the. As an American, as someone who's in the Bush administration, I think we undervalue it, especially in this town in D.C. I think if you go to Africa, it has a lot of soft power, if I can influence. I certainly think in a number of companies, 
uh, you'll see. I do think it's an interesting or it's like a form of soft law or kind of quasi soft law or something like that. Um, but I, I have a hard time imagining that the way in which we allocate money, whether it was a Repo- even in, a, in an Obama administration or some, I, I, I don't ever saw us saying now we're cutting this check because to hit goal number three, to make goal number two better. Is that, is that, how would you, how would you characterize the, let's just use maybe the end of the Obama administration. So those things were, those goals were signed in 2015. Did the goal, did the budget for the foreign assistance budget change as a result of those goals saying, now we're going to rejigger the budget around the SDGs? Well, you know, this is a good segue into the topic of data. Yeah, yeah. Which is the only reason that the goals should shift priorities is if we have data that shows there are particular needs that from a U.S. government perspective we can invest in and have an impact on making progress in that issue and and measure move the needle so I would I I I never expected nor thought it would be the right thing for the U.S. government uh, when these were finished in 2015 to all of a sudden reallocate its budget. Okay. It, it couldn't because these aren't a prioritization agenda. They're just a set of holistic issues that need to be addressed. Okay. That, that said, one of the big things that we pushed on, both within the sustainable development goals and more broadly, I mean, in, and we can talk about that in relation mm. to PEPFAR, for instance, was the use of data and the reality that we have the ability to have much more real-time information on the ground now to yeah, target. So, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Let's just let's just let's rewind the tape about data. Let's go back to like the beginning of your career, say 20 years ago in the late 90s. So in terms of the amount of data and the yeah. ability, how I mean, you're in the you're in the business of of consulting. You've been an, you're an engineer. Isn't it fair to say that we're in a different data environment? Completely. Uh, so again, if we look at if we take the year 2000 as a marker and the, um, versus today, when you looked at data on international development issues, even you know 15 years yeah. ago, this was uh, surveys on the ground surveys that were done every five years if you were lucky. There, was there wasn't a lot shooting of time any, there any was, shooting going on. Someone didn't put their life on the line. Yeah, right? and there was you know, a lot of data was sampled in small, relatively small samples, and then extrapolated. Yep. And what you've seen in that period, if you take in the private sector, is that data is collected in every interaction, right? I mean, to a degree. Cell phone, email, every, Facebook, Twitter. You know, if, if, if you're trying to understand a consumer as a company, your understanding of them is extremely multifaceted Credit and real time. Every and so we can for separate but, but, discussion but, if that's good yeah, or bad. Yeah. But the, right, that's a that's a separate discussion. <laughs> but it is for sure that when you have if you have a particular social purpose around improving the health of a mother, for instance, even anywhere in the world that has mobile coverage which is almost all almost of the world, every, almost, almost everywhere, world. Uh, you can have a much richer set of understanding of what the needs are of an individual um, patient or consumer. Uh, you can understand uh, when disease outbreaks are happening. Uh, you can understand what the demographic picture is of a population. 
in, in that's really, all in the last 15 years yes in, in incredibly immediate ways and that will only increase and so the idea that you have to wait for data plan some program over the long term wait again to see if it worked and then 10 years have passed yes. is just completely a, away of the past unfortunately his that's a 20th system, century model yeah the, this systems have not caught up to that no. yet right so when you look at historical um, traditional funding of grants or public monies in general in any country <laughs> these are done in a quite a top-down linear manner and I think what we saw as at Kind of a, this is at the State Department, what you saw at the State yeah, Department. Yeah, what we saw was, at the State Department and, and what I've seen also in my work, in your, at Dahlberg, in your work at Dahlberg, et cetera, is that there are various places in the chain between where money sits and where people's lives are affected where you can change the way you're doing yeah. things and make that much more real time. So personally, if we link this back to the sustainable development goals yeah. for a moment, yeah. I thought the best thing the sustainable development goals could do to push for results was to create data sources that were consistent across many different places in the world, consistently around a set of buckets of issues, and then start to make that data more real time. So for instance, good... Um, standards in the world for anything, right? If you're looking at standards for manufacturing or for um, financial markets, et cetera, they're actually underpinned by a set of almost data standards. And development has not had that. No. It has not had, oh, when we measure health, these are the these are this the is the VHS. Things. This is the VHS standard of, of measuring all the things on, on that AIDS. You do. And so now at the highest level, you'll see things like the global reporting initiatives or even ISO say, okay, I'm looking for development standards. I'll start with the SDGs at the highest level. And then I'll innovate like crazy around that. Yes. I mean, the SDGs and even the indicators, I yes. mean, that's... And so the potential to have some of that framework and data standards and what I found really funny when I would work with my colleagues who worked on, who were the very sophisticated technology and data people across the U.S. government and the White House, et cetera, what I really have hoped, and I think we see some progress, is unleashing all of the expertise in the data community to make dynamic data available to all kinds of actors. And so that's very Democratized messy. Democratized data. Yeah, it's very messy right now. It's got but, some I mean, issues with it, too. Yeah. You know, so let's say, let's say I have HIV. I'm trying to figure out the HIV population in Myanmar. Do I own that? There's all sorts of questions. Do I own that data? Is, this, is, Dan, is that Dan's data? Is it someone else's data? Do I have to be able to, do I have to virtually sign a thing saying I release my, it's okay that Dan, or it's not Dan, it doesn't have Dan, but it says patient X, right? This kind of stuff. There's all sorts of uh, privacy issues and different societies are having, right? Absolutely. And right? this is where you see, for instance, like blockchain and people looking for distributed ways to, so that no one, one organization yes. owns data. Yes, so these issues are, I, I mean, are profound. Um, that said, I think it's very exciting. Yeah, and I think if you let me give one very tangible example of not even the most sophisticated data, yeah. but of, of use of data, and I, you would see that in PEPFAR. Uh, Deb Burks, who is the head of, uh, yeah. who is the head of PEPFAR, very, uh, very strong kind of analytical, data-driven background at CDC and the military, et cetera, and she. One of her priorities was to say, let's look at all the places we're spending our money in PEPFAR. Let's look at the latest state of play in terms of what communities and subpopulations are being ma most affected. 
and make sure those match up. Sounds kind of basic. (laughs) Sounds kind of of like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Um, But that, given the evolution and that the response to HIV had been an emergency response, there had been more of a kind of national effort in various countries to Let's build that cold Put chain prevent, in Yeah, Malawi. prevention, treatment. Let's get it, you know, as, as widely as distributed as we possible. could. And it was, and it, was under, it was understandable. But fortunately, we've, one, seen rollback in, in some of the epidemic you in certain the, places. We're bending the curve. Unfortunately, there are spikes in certain populations, 15 to 24-year-old girls in particular, um, certain subpopulations yep. or certain geographies yep. have much higher rates. And so what she endeavored to do, and uh, we worked with her to make sure the diplomatic support was there, was really refocus resources to the populations that were most affected based on the data that they could collect that you every get a month quarter. ago or every quarter as exactly. opposed to saying like two years later or three years exactly. later and they made so they made routine the use of that data in all their quarterly reporting so, so, so 15 years ago when PEPFAR was launched they probably may not have been able they may not have been able to do that in 2003 Is that yeah. a fair statement I think it's a fair statement because both because their infrastructure wasn't there and they were just, I mean, the reality is so many people were infected and dying. You just had to get out You there. just had to get out and deal. Yeah. The, the, the homie Karras at Brookings uh, called for something called a revolution in development data. There was some, some mm-hmm. term like that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, it's slipping my mind. It was a good, it was a pithy. Data revolution. Yeah, the data revolution in development. Maybe that's what yeah, it was. Yeah. And it relates to this conversation that we're having. Mm-hmm. We did a report here at CSIS with, the, with JICA's Research Institute. We went to Myanmar and Laos to look at sort of this issue, and um, there, you know, there was. I, I think it's very exciting. You, there are certain assumptions in it. There are certain. There are some of some of the the liberty issues that we were talking about earlier in terms of personal data. And Europe has funny is funnier about it than we are, and who owns it? But the other thing is, what I was struck by was. You need certain – there are certain assumptions built in. You need electricity or you need internet access. You need someone who's actually numerate or literate who can actually – you need some kind of basic not, – not in everything, not in all the data. Some of the stuff you can get off of cell phones or bus – you know, the, the receipts off of city buses or this sort of a thing. But some of it has to interplay with sort of the, the – tradi- let me call it the traditional brick-and-mortar statisticians who, who do super boring – you know, watching paint dry, but really important stuff. Like if you have a functioning government, you need actually, you know, since the Roman Empire, you need, you know, or even earlier than that, you've needed people to track specific kinds of functions. And so it has to, this stuff has to link up with not just aid agencies, but actual bureaucracies that some of them don't have computers or some of them aren't, you know, some, what I was struck by when I went and looked at some of these places was, or, or if you've got a society that they've lied on their statistics, because it's an authoritarian regime. So Myanmar, before sort of this opening, would lie annually on sort of its economic growth numbers. Argentina, for 10 years, was lying on statistical numbers on inflation. So, you know, so, so anyway, so it's, it's a very interesting topic, this issue of data and how it relates to measuring progress. And, the, and so what Homi Karas was saying was, and this is what you were saying earlier, uh, is that is that we needed to have a new we needed a new way of looking at data and what you've just described sort of gets at, at this it's really it's very very interesting uh, there are several other things i think that come out of the sdgs one of them is about let me just talk about dfis you talked earlier about opic can you, you i think you must with your current client base 
you're doing a lot more. I'm guessing that much more so than 10 years ago are doing a lot more in let's call it the development finance world. What is development finance? How did you – how did it come up in your job at the State Department and how has it come up in your day job now? Sure. I mean I think development finance defined broadly is all the ways to deploy private capital in support of development goals uh, or in support of the sustainable development goals as it may be. I would – and historically that's been defined in – somewhat narrow way around government development finance institutions. It's this alphabet soup of groups like right. the International Finance Corporation, IFC, or exactly. the British one, or CDC, OPEC, or, OPEC. or CDC. And they haven't been historically very high profile in a certain way. They They're were kind sort of, of obscure. A, yeah, these small an obscure corner uh, units who maybe worked. And they're of different flavors. Some are really oriented towards working with companies from their own uh, country, um, which is towards where OPEC has been. Some are really about supporting developing country um, private investment initiatives yeah. of any flavor, uh, et cetera. So I, I think there's two things that have happened over the last 10 years. One is that space of entities have become more sophisticated, have grown, and their governments and aid agencies have seen that they're a strategic asset. We, we did a study that looked at from the year 2000, the year 2014, 2015, it went from $10 billion, all the investments that all the alphabet soup groups did, there were 20 of them, to $70 billion. So there was a seven times increase. And over that period of time from 2000 to 2015, there was a doubling of all ODA according to the DAC, which is, you know, sort of like the Major League Baseball mm-hmm. Commission of Foreign Aid. So we – there really isn't a DAC or there isn't – somebody who doesn't really track what DFIs are doing. It's been sort of – like you said, it's sort of this obscure corner of the development world. But yeah. it's, it's a much bigger than it used to be. And I, I, my argument is sooner or later those num- lines are going to cross. Yeah. I think that's very likely. And I think Canada is an interesting case study here because uh, as – and linked to the negotiation on the Sustainable Development Goals and the, there was a financing for development agreement that went along with that, Canada decided to really beef up its development finance tools and, and set up a, a, a DFI, in fact. And the interesting thing there is that uh, that was set up by the conservative government at the time and when Trudeau came in, that has remained a priority, and they're continuing to grow it. So historically, those would have been seen as more ideological choices almost. 15 years ago or 20 years ago, that would have been part of like an ideological debate about wither development. Yeah, and in this case, both – it's not ideological. It's a, it's a recognition across the ideological spectrum that private financing is a really important piece of the picture. And Let me just stop you just for a second and say I think this is one of the values of the United Nations. So I think that as part of the run-up to the SDGs, you referenced the Addis Ababa Financing for Mm -hmm. Development Conference. In some ways, it sort of reset the the global debate on this topic and kind of made it safe in some ways. Is that maybe that way to describe it? I think that's right. Interestingly, that was was pretty hotly debated. And I always think about, you know, having my occupational hazard of being – been a consultant for too long. I think in slides, which I think you need. <laughs> and there is a, there is a slide that I continue to use and use, which shows financing flows yeah. from higher to low income countries since the early '90s. And what you see in that period, where 1990 private investment flows would have been maybe double uh, of development aid. Now it's ten times. Right? It's more so. 
the private financing flows, regardless of what any government decides to do, have just become a very big part of the picture of the interaction between high and low income countries. Now, those private financing flows aren't all directed to address a health issue. I mean, they're not equivalent, but they do they do speak to the nature of economic interaction between countries countries that has significantly involved. And this is where development finance institutions are at the center of that kind of interaction and and can continue to be. Um, But, you know, I'd like to actually take the development finance frame one step further, which is now back at Dahlberg working with a lot of companies and finance institutions and foundations I'm not using the word development finance that much. I'm using the word finance <laughs> writ large because financial institutions, even those who would not, not just the DFIs, are recognizing that their investment and influence on the markets has a very significant impact on many of the sustainable development goals and many of the issues of our time. And so what we're the conversation we're having a lot is around development finance with some, but also about ESG environmental What's ESG? Yeah. yeah environmental social governance uh, standards that companies around the world and investors around the world consider uh, when they make and an considering investment. more and more exactly. So we recently. Uh, worked on a study looking at the pension and sovereign fund market and saying, if we look at those players, I mean, $20 trillion, and that's not counting all of them, but, you know, the major pension and sovereign funds around the world. Is the that, the, size, is that the, the size of the U.S. global economy? It's EU. Um, it's close. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's bigger than uh, the EU last year. So that those assets – who are owned by, you know, CalPERS are owned by the California pensioners, right? Yeah. Or the Ontario teachers or the um, Dutch pensions. Or the Norwegian or, Sovereign Wealth Or the Wealth Norwegian Fund. Sovereign Wealth Fund, et cetera. Th- those have grown. In that same period, you've seen dramatic growth in those kind of vehicles around the world. I think it has a trillion dollars, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund? The Norwegians alone Something are close. a trillion. <sighs> yes. So we're really talking about huge um, – pools of capital, and they've started to ask the question, what drives long-term performance of the companies we invest in? And as it turns out, a lot of the research says that companies that are well-governed, <laughs> that are considering their risk factors, environmental risks, social risks, labor risks, effectively, are actually better performing to begin with. There's a very good study out of Harvard Business School a couple of years ago on that, uh, and and others. Um, and so they're asking the question, how do we become more strategic on incorporating those issues? So that may mean some are, for instance, taking a part of their portfolios towards uh, low-carbon investments, whether it's renewable or companies that are particularly effective there. Others uh, may be saying agriculture is going to be really important, food, you know, um, food supply. We're going to invest in uh, companies that are particularly addressing uh, the future of food production. And there are others who say the evidence is strong that uh, companies with uh, gender-diverse boards are actually uh, better governed and face less risk. So, for instance, CalPERS last year, last April, sent a 
letter to 500 companies that they invest in that they invest in and said which is you know calpers i mean all these investors hold the market in a certain way they're so big um anyway they uh, 500 companies uh saying you have no women on your board uh the evidence shows that that's not good business practice. We want to know what your plan is to address that. And you've seen some very significant changes even in the last year uh, on that. So I think that that overall level, development finance, directed development finance, let's call it, that a a DFI like OPIC or others might do is important because it's very purposeful. (laughs) So I'm not taking that away. Uh, But I think there is, I think, we are in a moment where many actors are asking, "What's how am I influencing the future of the planet, of society? And uh, financial institutions and investors have recognized that they are, they are influencing the future in significant ways. And that matters in terms of their profits, ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it matters in terms of you know, the people that are their stakeholders. So... Danielle, what are you optimistic about in the, as you look out in terms of international development? What are you, what are you hopeful about? I think on the positive side, we do have a more dynamic and innovative environment that has emerged in, in the last 10, 15 years. When you think about just the activity of you know, social entrepreneurs and new types of investors and impact investing, this, the overall landscape just looks very different in terms of who is engaging in this space. And, and even the traditional institutions have evolved. If you look at a USAID, if you look at a DFID, they're doing things, um, they're doing things differently. So I think that's encouraging. I think, uh, Data and technology are going to continue to uh, make information about challenges we face more accessible, enable targeting of resources, you know, create dynamism. I think that's that's absolutely the case. And this this almost this democratization in a certain way of development that it's not something that is outsourced exclusively to kind of foreign aid agencies of a country. But which everyone, you know, and this isn't only in the U.S. government, right? Part of what I saw as my role is let's get the State Department to see this as relevant to our diplomacy. And, but it's not just the State Department. It's everyone. It's the pension fund. It's the, um, the company with mm. a large presence around the world. For them to ask the question of how are my operations positively or negatively impacting these issues is a pretty big sea change, and I see that. So I think I think all of those things uh, make me optimistic. I will say that one of the most worrying things that you do see around the world, which can affect all of this, are things like closing civil society space in many countries um, or efforts at kind of globally transparency or other issues kind of rescinding. I do, I do think there are real risks ahead uh, that I don't I think as many of us were focused on kind of innovation and investment making sure that the underpinnings of good governance and of um, uh, a civil society environment that is dynamic and robust in many countries uh, I want to make sure that we don't lose that piece of the picture as kind of 
data and innovation and all kinds of efforts pushed forward. Yeah, I think that if, if my friend Andrew Natsios would say that there's two drivers of development, it's good governance and a formal and growing private enterprise. Well, you, you can't really have one without the other. So, so, well, look, this is great. Danielle, thanks for your time. It's fabulous. And I really appreciate you coming in and speaking with us today. Pleasure, Dan.